This episode of Trek Geeks is dedicated to the memory of Grant Imahara, who passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm on July 13th, 2020, at the age of 49. Whether you knew him as Sulu on Star Trek Continues, Mythbusters, or somewhere else, Grant was an incredible talent and a genuinely kind person who will be missed now and every day after. May his kindness, his generosity of spirit, and his memory live on. Trek Geeks is proud to have Fansets as its presenting sponsor. Fansets is the place for amazing pin collectibles, with over 200 officially licensed Star Trek pins and new releases every month. Stay tuned for a special discount code good on your next order at fansets.com just for Trek Geeks listeners. Fansets. Our pins have character. This episode is also sponsored by Science Division, the makers of the world's first interactive tribble that you can control with your smartphone. Find out more at sciencediv.com. Science Division. Trouble's never been this fun. Hi, this is Michelle Specht, Dr. McKenna on Star Trek Continues. As ship's counselor, I am recommending you listen to the soothing sounds of the Trek Geeks podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Doctor's Orders. planet of galactic peace somewhere probably in a hole that some dude is digging with you know who's got bad teeth and stuff it's the biggest little show this side of the alpha quadrant and the flagship of the trek geeks podcast network greetings ladies gentlemen children of all ages welcome to trek geeks i'm your co-host bill smith it's great to have you here for episode number 225 um yeah wow 225 uh just think 224 times before i have introduced my co-host and I'm about as excited as I have been every other time. If I were going to drop him somewhere, it would be smack dab in the middle of Nimbus 3. He's the um, uh, the largely diplomatic Dan Davidson. Dan, um, welcome to your new post, buddy. Not. Sorry, that was the cliffhanger <laughs> from last time we ended the show. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, buddy. It's, it's, I had forgotten it's, all about that. Well, that's because it's called a cliffhanger. You know, we didn't have a, you know, last time on Trek Geeks, the podcast for generations, blah, 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 blah. It's good to be here. How are you? I haven't seen I'm, you in a while. I'm good. How you? How was your week off? It was great. You, you, want me to be, you want me to be honest? Nope. Okay, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sucked. It rained a lot. Things broke. Yeah. But that's okay. It was still at the lake, so that's always a win. But you didn't have to see me, which is really what it comes down to. Oh, okay. Basically, I was in heaven. So thank you. 
<laughs> you're you're welcome, <laughs> Dan. Uh, I, I teased this a little bit before with uh, with some references to the movie, but we have a, a great topic on hand for today and a special guest. Absolutely. You know, every time we decide to deep dive into whether it's a movie or a specific episode, we're like, oh, how come we didn't think of this one before? Well, that was my Kermit the Frog version. That's pretty um, good. Uh, thank you. Um, but this is one that we've talked about, but we've never focused an entire episode on. We've talked about things that people really don't like about the movies, and this one always seems to come up. So we're talking Star Trek V, The Final Frontier today. Um, a lot of people don't like this movie. I honestly have not seen it for over a decade until I prepared for it just a couple of days ago. Um, so it's been a long time. I know that you've kind of had a, a, a sour look at it, maybe not as much as some other people. Um, so we decided to... It just fell on the schedule to talk about and right after we decided to put this on the schedule we noticed that a good friend of ours actually loves star trek 5 and loves to talk about so everything lined right up and we're going to be uh joined by new york times best-selling author dayton ward that's right i said it he's going to be here we're going to talk star trek 5 with he you and i do you get a commission every time you say new york times best-selling author I wish I did because I just love saying New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's one thing that, that we definitely are not. Um, no. No, not no. by any means. And if you want to tell us how much we are not that, Dan, how might people <laughs> do that very thing? Uh, there's a whole bunch of ways that uh, you can get in touch with us to tell us just how bad we are at writing. You can head over to trekgeeks.com slash contact, and there you will find a multitude of ways to communicate with us. Now, let's see. There's uh, Skype chat. There's email. Uh, there's a giant uh, big blue button that will allow you to send voicemail via SpeakPipe. Whatever way you want to contact us, make it so because we love hearing from you. Plus, there's always the most positive Star Trek group on Facebook. It's Camp Kittimer. It's our official group, and it's where over 1,701 friends gather to talk Trek. You see what I did there? Uh, it's always positive, and there's no bashing or gatekeeping ever allowed. To join the group, just head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer and be ready to take part of a truly wonderful social experience. And as always, we want to thank our wonderful admins, Haley, Jackie, and Dan, for the amazing job they do running said camp. Also, please remember that any comments or messages that you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode because we own the rights. We're going to use them. We're going to talk about your bill. Back to you. Wow, that just was very in your face. Awesome, wasn't it, though? I didn't make a mistake. That's like, like I don't even know how many weeks in a row. You should take vacation more often. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, that means I would have to do the podcast without you, and I guess I'd find a way. I'd muddle through somehow. I'd probably be more popular, too. And here we are at the part of the show where we talk about our friends at Fansets and the amazing line of Star Trek pins that just grows larger and larger all the time. You know, one of the things I love so much about Fansets is that you would think that with so many pins and accessories that maybe perhaps the quality of the product would slide over time. I've seen it with other companies, but certainly not with Fansets. If anything, the quality of their products has gotten better over time. And that's because of the dedication they have to you, their customers. Yeah, I couldn't have said that any better, my friend, and I agree 100%. As a matter of fact, I agree so much that just this past weekend, as my vacation wrapped up, I placed my largest order ever with fansets. Yep, I needed to catch up on my collection, so I am anxiously awaiting the 13 pins that I ordered, which, yeah, that's right, I said it, 13. Uh, the newest pins included, such as uh, Women of Trek 7 of 9, 
and Jadzia Dax pins, as well as Micro Crew pins Wesley Crusher from TNG in that world-famous sweater, as well as Narek and Dodge from Star Trek Picard. Plus, don't forget about the absolutely gorgeous Star Trek Discovery Command Delta full-size pin. Dude, I gotta say, you did a fantastic job with the unboxing of this pin while I was on vacation, and I think that this collection of full-size Deltas is is just going to be a huge success and is going to revolutionize the pin collecting industry as we know it. Commander Riker, <laughs> it, it's too soon for this. Wow. I'm going to say that every time I see that Wesley Crusher pin, just because it, it looks like Wesley Crusher. Um, <laughs> you know, regarding that pin unboxing, I got to say, what a thrill it was to hold that beauty in my hand. I mean, as always, the quality is top notch, and I know it's going to be a huge seller. So listeners... If you want to have any of the pins Dan mentioned or, or any of the over 200 Star Trek pins available, head on over to fansets.com, put a bunch of pins and accessories and gift certificates into your cart. Because remember, if you spend more than 30 bucks, you're going to get free shipping. On top of that, at checkout, enter the Trek Geeks exclusive discount code for this week, CYBOK, for 15% off your entire order. That's S-Y-B-O-K in all capital letters. Now, this bonus code is going to be available to use until Wednesday, July 29th, 2020, at midnight Eastern Daylight Time. Fansets. Our pins have character. And we thank our friends at Fansets for being the presenting sponsor of Trek Geeks. You know, our guest tonight really needs no introduction, but I'm, I'm going to do one anyway. Uh, we've had the pleasure of having him on the Trek Geeks podcast several times. He is, and this is my favorite part, a New York Times best-selling author. One of his more recent projects was the Star Trek Kirk Fu Manual, a guide to Starfleet's most feared martial art, and it sits right here on my desk at all times. And his latest Star Trek adventure, Agents of Influence, is getting... Amazing reviews, and why wouldn't it? It's a Dayton Ward novel. He is Dayton Ward, and he joins us here again on the Trek Geeks podcast. We're just thrilled to have you here, man. Thanks, and thanks for showing all your cool books that you got there. <laughs> Nobody can see them. How's it going? It's going great. How's it going, gents? I was just about to ask: Is this for recording for visual later, or is it just for us? Just for me when I'm by myself. Is, is it? <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, audio only. It's just so you can see Dan's beautiful face when you're talking to him. Sorry about that. Normally you charge double for that action, Cotton. I know. All right. <laughs> That's a bold strategy. Let's see if it pays off. <laughs> you know, we could descend into dodgeball quotes, but uh, it's a joy to have you back, man. We're psyched. I just started Agents of Influence the other day, the audio book read by Robert Petkoff, who is fantastic. Um, I don't commute as much anymore, so it's going to take me a little longer to get through it. But uh, do you want to sort of thumbnail the plot for us, uh, for anyone who's listening? Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, first of all, thanks for reading it or listening to it, whatever. You know, it all works out. Kids College okay. Funds, thank you very much. Um, unless you rented it from the library, but I got my money from them too. So it's okay. <laughs> um, so it's an original series novel. It's set during the five-year mission, which is my personal favorite era of Star Trek and uh, it is involves Federation intelligence agents who have been working undercover in the Klingon Empire for years, disguised, surgically altered to appear Klingon, and they've immersed themselves in the culture and they've been very slowly, very deliberately gathering intelligence on any number of things uh, of interest to Starfleet. And uh, they have cause to activate their emergency extraction protocols and get gone from the Klingon Empire. And the mission calls for them to get to the border and be rescued by a Federation ship. 
And of course, things go horribly wrong with that plan. It all goes to crap like it normally does in the first act of one of these things. And the Enterprise is therefore sent to investigate what happened to the first ship and what happened to the agents. And can any of those folks be rescued? And can all that cool intelligence they've been gathering for years be salvaged as well? All without the Klingons getting to them first. And oh, by the way, there are Orion pirates. <laughs> because why not? <laughs> well, I see I'm in for quite a ride. And um, I, I congratulate you on the launch of the book. And I hope it's enormously successful. It seems, thank you very much. It seems like it's doing really well. The reviews I've gotten so far and the feedback I've gotten so far, people seem to be enjoying it. So uh, I had a lot of fun with it. It's kind of got a Cold War Hunt for Red October vibe baked in there a little bit. Um, I just, I don't know. I just had fun with it. I had fun writing the whole thing all the way through. I know Christine Rideout likes it. Uh, well, I know she likes it. Yeah. <laughs> she's uh, Yeah. She gets name checked. Bill probably doesn't get that yet. She'll, he'll find out soon enough. <laughs> I um and just today I think on on the the media of socialness you uh you've got another project that you did with Kevin Dilmore? Yeah, he and I are doing uh, well, I mean after a while we haven't actually collaborated on any fiction for a while. Um we are working on several short stories this year for different publishers and uh the first one is due to be published here in September. Uh, it's in an anthology called It Came from the Multiplex, 80s Midnight Chillers. So all the stories are inspired by 1980s era horror movies and nice. that sort of thing. And so Kevin and I are both children of the 80s. We grew up, you know, in that decade. So I got to see all the cool 80s horror flicks like Return of the Living Dead and the thing, like good stuff. So we modeled our story very much on that type of horror from the 80s. So kind of campy, but also kind of gross. <laughs> And uh, that's that's yeah, we have several things working this year. I don't know what happened after a drought. We all of a sudden got asked to write, you know, four or five different things. So we are we are very busy this summer. That's not the worst problem to have. And you mentioned campy and gross. And that was just uh, that's really a segue for Dan to say anything because he's kind of campy and and also quite gross. I was going to talk about how it was nice to see you get back to the uh, World War One museum that you like to post about a lot on social media. But since Bill was going to be like that, I won't do that because that would be kind of insulting of what I was going to say. So, yeah. (laughs) Your face insults what you want to say. (laughs) Rescue you there with that a little (laughs) bit. Um, I am a a volunteer uh, for the National World War I Museum and Memorial here in Kansas City. Uh, The the original memorial uh, has been here since 1926. And had a small museum that accompanied it back in those days. And now there's a much larger facility that opened in 2006. And I am one of about 300 volunteers that give varying degrees of time throughout the month. Uh, we staff the regular hours of the museum. We act as tour guides. We act as you know helpers. And if people have questions or where's the bathroom or where do I find the store or that kind of thing. Nice. Um, we also staff special events like fundraisers and they use the, a lot of companies like to use our facilities for parties and team building experiences. And we have movies outside on the lawn. Uh, we do special ceremonies for military units who do promotions and retirements and uh, awards and things like that. So there's a lot going on and the grounds get used by a lot of different private folks for like things like car shows and, uh, all kinds of things. So we're very engaged with the community, uh, but it takes a lot of volunteers. And it, like I said, there's probably almost 300 of us. And we range, we range in age anywhere from a senior in high school to a guy who's pushing 90. Wow. So it's just, uh, I'm, and I'm in the middle somewhere. I kind of like flatten the curve just a little <laughs> bit right there. 
So it's a lot of fun. Dan flattens a lot of curves. No, I, I do. I do. <laughs> well, that, that's great. And congratulations uh, to your Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. And a lot of people don't know this. Well, I know a couple of people don't know this, that Kansas City is not actually in Kansas. So you got that going for you, which is nice. Kills people is that there's actually a Kansas City, Missouri and a Kansas City, Kansas, but they are actually two separate cities with two separate mayors, even though they do come together to work on a variety of things that affect the entire area. But yes, Kansas, the Kansas City Chiefs do play in Missouri. There you go. Catching up with Dayton, the new podcast coming to the Trek Geeks Podcast Network in 2026. <laughs> yeah, say, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, I don't think we're talking about this tonight, are we? Be sure to check your iPhones. Well, you know, I figure what better way to talk about three old farts camping in the desert than to have three old farts sitting around a microphone to talk about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. That's sort of much maligned of movies. Um, and, and if I think about it, I know a lot of people describe this as what they think is the worst of all the Star Trek feature films, but I guess I've just never really felt that way. Um, I guess, uh, Dayton, we'll start with you. I mean, uh, have you always liked this movie? D- did you maybe not like it at first and then fall in love with it? What's your relationship with Star Trek V? It's an interesting animal. Um, I, when I hear people immediately call it the worst Star Trek movie, it's, to me, it's the same people who say Spock's brain is the worst Star Trek episode. I'm like, you haven't nice. watched enough Star Trek. <laughs> so I, can, yeah. I, can name, <laughs> I can name a dozen episodes I will never watch before I watch Spock's brain. Um, oh, it, this is the only Star Trek movie I did not see on opening day. Uh, I, I actually was overseas at the time it premiered in theaters and this was the summer of 89. So Batman fever was everywhere. And if, right. if you weren't Batman, you know, you were fighting for second place. And so I read the novelization first. I picked it up in a bookstore over there. And, uh, so I was all primed for this movie. The novelization is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Jeannie Diller did a fantastic, uh, adaptation of that script and i was really pumped for this movie but i started hearing about the reviews and how it wasn't being received as well as the previous one um so i started to have a little gnawing fear in the pit of my stomach that it wasn't going to be in the theater by the time i got back to the states um but that back in those days even bad movies stayed in theaters for two months at a time so uh, i got lucky and we went to go see it i think it was myself and my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife but um and maybe three other guys including two people who may have been sleeping there you know, since the last movie, I don't remember, but, <laughs> and I came away thinking, yeah, not as good as the first one, but I still enjoyed parts of it. And uh, it's not my favorite of the bunch, but there's a lot that I do like about the film. There's, there are, there are elements of the film that are among my favorite bits of Star Trek. And we can get into that as we start pulling this thing apart, but yeah, I don't hate it. Yeah. I don't hate it. Dan, what about you? I mean, I know you haven't seen every Star Trek movie opening night or opening weekend. Do you yeah. recall seeing this one? Because I know there are some you just don't remember seeing at the theater. No, I, I, I remember I did see it at the theater. I don't recall if I saw this one on opening night or not. I do know that I was extremely excited for it because, A, it's a Star Trek movie, and, B, Star Trek Four was just so fantastic. I mean, even back then, Star Trek Four was considered one of the best ones right after it came out. I mean, it was just – it was it had everything you wanted in a Star Trek movie. I was actually excited that Shatner was directing it. I was I was curious as to what it was going to be like, and I just remember coming out of there being like, huh, <laughs> okay. If that's the final frontier, that didn't go out on a good note as much as I would have liked it to. Um, and I've kind of had that opinion of it for 30 years. Is that where we're at? 
25, 30 years, something like 30, that. 31 I, I don't math isn't hard, but I know that uh, somewhere years. on the, yeah. And I'll be quite honest. I haven't watched it for over a decade from start to finish until yesterday, preparing for the discussion with you two fine gentlemen. And, um, and get into my new opinions. Oh my God. I've got some great opinions about it now. Oh boy. You guys are going <laughs> to love it. <laughs> what about you, Bill? I, um, I, I saw it in, I saw it opening night. I saw it in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, and that's only because nobody in Laconia was playing it at the time, <laughs> the opening weekend, I don't think. Um, but I went with a bunch of friends and, you know, we were all just a couple years out of high school. So this was the summer before I turned 21. And man, I wish I had turned 21 beforehand because I did a lot of underage drinking afterwards, allegedly. Um, and I left that theater going, Oh, re- Oh, not in front of the Klingons. What? 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 Um, and so I, I honestly didn't think there was going to be a Star Trek six after this. I wow. really didn't. I'm like, all right, we're done. It was a good run. No more Star Trek ever. Um, <laughs> add that to the list of things I was just horribly wrong Everything. about. I too was excited about Shatner directing. Um, uh, until I saw that movie the first night. <laughs> um, but uh, my opinion has softened on that and his direction yeah. since then. Um, one of the things that, that really kind of impressed me about Star Trek V was that Paramount was willing to make it a summer tentpole movie, um, given all of the awesomeness that was going around in 1989, like Dayton mentioned, like Batman. Um, regarding the, the God story, because essentially this, this broke down in a lot of fan mags and, and things like Starlog to, um, uh, Kirk's search for God or the Enterprise's quest to find God. Uh, did that change your opinion of the story before you saw it? Um, or did you think that that really was a fair summation? Dayton, what I about you? I remember thinking at the time it was a little, it was an iffy idea. Uh, and I also thought there's probably no way they're going to pull this off without irritating somebody, offending or irritating somebody. That was what I was most worried about is they were going to come up with some weird thing and it was going to irk people unnecessarily. Um, but in the back of my head, I also figured, yeah, it's going to be an alien. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be, a, uh, an Organian or it's going to be some other new kind of super powerful alien that we, that we, that is posing as God because Star Trek's done that a few times. Um, what I did like about the film was that after Star Trek two, three, and four were done, um, this is the one that I mean, I, you got to give Shatner credit. He swung for the fence. On, on this with, with the, with the premise and the storyline and getting out there, you know, we're, this is, this is exploring strange new worlds. This is seeking out new life. It's, you know, it's, wow, that's the first time we've done that since the first movie, which nobody seems to like either. And so I was kind of hoping, I was hopeful for that. Uh, and I don't, like I said, I don't know that it, it didn't hit everything. It didn't, it didn't knock it out of the park, but at least it tried to do something. And I can give it props for that. Dan, what about you? Was the quest for God one you really wanted to go on, or or were you happy to leave that in another franchise? It didn't bother me. Like like what Dayton said, it's going to end up being an alien. I mean, it always is. Um, yeah. I, I love the fact that God was actually – looked a lot like Admiral Hansen from Best of Both Worlds, but that's just me. Um, but I thought that was an interesting aspect of it when we finally get to see this planet. And it made sense that, no, it wasn't God. It was just some being being trapped there for some reason. I thought it was great that that's what it turned out to be. So the idea of of the crew and the Enterprise searching for God, it didn't really bother me. And I also have to say I, I completely agree with, with Dayton, with Shatner swinging for the fences. He really did. The unfortunate thing is Paramount, 
I think, was holding his arms while he was swinging for the fences in terms of special effects budget and stuff like that, because I think that's really where the movie suffers for me, which I'll get into later on was the special effects. Um, but no, I, I, that didn't bother me at all, man. What about you? I I look at it less as sort of a search for God and more or less um, a, a, a treatise on cultism. Um, because essentially, I mean, what you've got is Cybok, who is nothing more than a cult leader. And I mean, I guess part of Shatner's inspiration for this story, um, was a televangelist and specifically Jim and Tammy Faye Baker in the late eighties. Um, but you know, if you examine Cybok from the aspect of him being the leader of a cult, I think it's a much more cohesive film. Um, I think that he possesses all of those qualities that modern day and even previous day cult leaders sort of exhibit, um, Including the the questioning his own um, madness, um, it, you know, after that uh, that scene in the observation lounge, I, I think it's a much more uh, interesting movie if you think about it in those terms. What do you guys think, Dan? It's hard to answer that. Um, I, I I don't really have okay. an answer for that right now. I might have more of one after I hear what Dayton has to say. It might kind of spark something in my brain, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of at a loss at the moment. Yeah, which that never nicely, really happened. Nicely so. done. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> nice. Yeah, that was a real. I lobbed you yeah. a real, yeah. real hardball, yeah. thinking you'd knock it out of the park like Shatner swing at the fences. Yeah. No, you're sort of letting it pass, and you're going to take a base on balls and let the cleanup come in. <laughs> Bat never yeah, came off your shoulder, bro. I'm sitting here watching. Um, man, um, I got you know I I've. I'm sure I've thought about him as a cult leader um, at least once in 30 odd years. But when you say it like that, it makes perfect sense. Yes. He does come off as a, as a, as a cult leader. Uh, and it makes that works for me. Um, and he does. I mean, even from the very beginning, when you first see him, you know, and he's, and he's laying out his spiel, his, uh, his, his carnival Barker spiel to the poor guy in the open field, you know? And uh yeah, it makes perfect sense. I'm, which of course it provokes its own series of issues that we can get into later on as the film progresses. Because you're like, well, wait, now wait a minute, <laughs> he's not that convincing, is he? So, well, I, I now think, I have an opinion. Okay, yeah, what's your opinion, Dan? <laughs> Please share that with us. It actually, it actually made it actually wh- wh- as soon as Dayton started talking, it made me spark what I was what I was thinking of, and <laughs> it does make sense because as soon as you get the crazy aspect in in air quotes of cybok the laughing vulcan right at the beginning his speeches and then when he says that he had the vision and kirk actually says you've gone mad or are you mad something like that that really wraps that whole cult leader thing because let's be honest we all think that cult leaders are crazy when we hear about what they're doing and what they've done and who they've killed and and what their whole message is so it makes it makes total sense that it works better with that aspect. I think there you go. Cult leaders are always crazy in the third person. Yes. Um, it's, it's in the first person. They seem rather sane, right? Um, <laughs> right. But one of the first things I love about that opening scene is the fact that Rex Holman, who is in specter yes. of the gun is the guy yep. digging holes in that opening sequence. Um, mm-hmm. I love that little bit of trivia. And every time I watch the movie, I'm like, Oh, it's a guy from specter of the gun. <laughs> and man, he's got bad teeth, bad. What teeth? There is no dental plan on Nimbus 3. Um, and, and that, that kind of takes me to, to Nimbus 3 in a sense. I mean, we've got a planet here that um, is a negotiated planet of galactic peace, but really what it seems to be is one giant cesspool of creatures. 
Um, yeah. I I like the fact that in the um, in the the Picard tie-in novel, The Last Best Hope, there were scenes on Nimbus Three in that particular book. Spoiler alert! Um, but I I kind of wish they had drawn out the sort of structure of Nimbus Three and uh, how that. The, the populace of that planet and whether there were factions or warlords or that, that type of thing. I think for me, Dayton and, and you and Dan may disagree with about this. I think this is probably one of the most, um, underserved areas of this particular script because I think they could have added some real context and some conflict here. Yeah. They kind of gloss over the whole setup of why the planet, you know, is what it is. Why, 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 yeah. why are the Federation, the Klingons and the Romulans, three powers who don't like each other at this particular period in time. How did this happen? Who, who sat down with cool heads long enough for this to happen? Right. And if you do the math, because they're saying it was 20 years ago, of course, all the cannon heads are doing the math and they're counting back. And they're like, wait a minute, this was a, a, mu- a year after Balance of Terror. There's no way the Federation and the Romulans are going to be sitting down at a, and they're not going to camp out together on Nimbus 3. You know, before the Internet, this is what canon arguments look like. And it's true. And so you you know, you, you kind of have to gloss over it. And then there's some lip service paid to the idea of, you know, they were hoping that they could find common ground with these three with these three factions coming together and and finding ways to work together and it all fell apart and then suddenly it just became a truck stop i guess for lack of a better term it's just the the worst dregs of people who can't get anywhere or leg up anywhere they end up here and there's there's no here here it's just it's like mad max more or less i mean and you know the whole thing like we forbade them weapons so they fashioned their own i'm like well that's unusual nobody's ever done that in the history of any living organism ever so uh, (laughs) i just i don't know you're right it's very it's very quick it's very it's very um it's just dispensed with very quickly and i think there's a lot of meat there and we we uh in the fiction it's come out a few times i mean like you said it does appear as as a planet in the last best hope uh which is actually an interesting conversation that we we all kind of leaned into and helped Una figure out that this was a good place to have those scenes Neat. because of the history. Nice. And, uh, but we also use them in the Vanguard novels. Uh, oh, right, right. Is, 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 is a, is a vital area in the Vanguard novels um, for very similar reasons. In fact, you kind of see what was going on 20 years before Star Trek five uh, on, you know, during the Vanguard storyline. So that was fun for us to do. But I mean, other than that, there's really, it's usually the butt of a joke when you ever hear a reference to it, which is too bad because I thought the idea was fascinating. I think so too. And, and Dan, I I think that Nimbus three could have really been an interesting world uh, to carry forward. But um, do you think it was as, uh, as misused or underused a, a resource on this movie? I think it was completely underused. And part of the reason why I think that is because I think it is nothing more than the Star Trek version of Moss Eisley spaceport in the Star Wars franchise. That's something I've always thought of when I've seen it. I'm like, they're trying to take that off and see if it'll take off as much as it does in A New Hope. And it just doesn't. And Dayton's example of, of you know, I thought planet, uh, weapons were forbidden on this planet, yet everybody's got a weapon. It just, it just doesn't make sense. I didn't, you know, the bar itself, they tried to show a bunch of aliens, and then they tried to show what I now kind of think of as Quark on the TV screen. It's not Quark, but it reminds me when Quark is trying to do merchandise on the TV screen. And then they have the cat alien there who like dies on the elect on the water pool because she gets electric. I don't know. But anyway, it just it was it was very much underused. Um I think it was one of the swing and a miss, um, not by Shatner directing, but just in the story. I am glad to see that it has continued on in novelizations because it is interesting. But why would the three major powers of the quadrant send representatives 
to a a crap show like that planet. I mean, you would think that if they're going to try to do something to negotiate and and bring their people together, it why would you do that? It was just going to piss those people off, and they're not going to want to work together anyway. Well, and these people seem to be the people who've drawn the short straws in their respective yeah. societies. No. I mean, Sinjin Talbot isn't exactly a uh, uh, a top flight diplomat. I'm thinking. I mean, Caitlin Dar probably is is probably a little better. She seems to have a little more optimism. But uh, right. he and uh, uh, Talbot and Cord are just sort of like, eh, yeah, yeah, you'll get used to it, kid. You know, it's uh, it, it's a thing. Um, I I thought. I mean, I get why they needed hostages. I do. I just thought they could have added a little more value because I almost don't know that the Klingons or Romulans would care if those two individuals were actually kidnapped. Those two specific ones. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kirk talks about the fact that Cord seems to have been put out to pasture there uh, when he's talking about his military career and that it was required yeah. reading at the academy. Um, and then he's he's on this uh, worthless ball of dirt or whatever St. John Talbot calls it, which I always like. Yeah, it's a lost cause, apparently. I mean, yeah. uh, Caitlin Dar shows up, but it's her first day on the job. She's like, hi, I'm Caitlin Dar, I'm the Robin representative. And they're all like, sit down. <laughs> Pop is over there. You know, <laughs> you're interrupting my stories. Leave me alone. <laughs> so what a waste of a, a great actor, David Warner, in this role. Yes. Uh, he gets almost absolutely nothing to do. I mean, his his initial little monologue there when he's describing, when he's, when he's basically telling the audience why we're all here. Yeah. That's pretty much it for him in this it film. Is. Yeah, uh, well, I think they must have offered Star Trek Six as an apology. I really do. I, I think they actually did. Um, <laughs> I think because he had precious little to do in five, they said, "Hey, why don't you come back for six? We'll we'll make it Abraham Lincoln." And he's like, "All right, I'm in." Um, <laughs> and who could blame him? Because that was just such a, a wonderful part, you know. But uh, hey, back to five for a minute. Um, one of my biggest problems with several of the Star Trek movies is the treatment of the Enterprise. Um, in many of the movies, she gets the crap kicked out of her all the time. And in this one, um, you know, what is supposed to be the finest starship in, in the fleet is, um, a bucket of bolts that can barely hold it together because it's so new that, um, they never finished it in time and, and stuff's broke. Um, yeah. I, that's just the way I feel about it. I don't know if I'm in the minority on that, but what we really get here is the first voyage of the Enterprise A. Um, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I, I kind of want a more loving treatment, kind of like we got in the motion picture. Um, because two, she gets the crap kicked out of her. Three, she gets destroyed. Uh, four, she's non-existent. Five is this thing. And then six is really kind of okay, but she gets the crap kicked out of her again. Um, uh, how do you guys feel about the Enterprise in this movie? Because she is a character. Dayton? I, yeah, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from, and I agree with it. I, a lot of the humor in the early going is mined from the fact that the ship is not ready to go. Yeah. And uh, looking back on it, I don't – not all of it works. Not, a lot, not all the jokes land. Uh, a few of them are funny, but, I mean, it, I think they kind of overplay it. And it, it, it's almost an insult to uh, Scotty that he and his team couldn't get this thing together. Yeah. You know. That's it. Uh, it's it's all yeah, and I and that, and that opens up another bucket of questions because the treatment of the supporting players, you know, they they almost become one joke parody of themselves. Which you you know, Star Trek. I have no problem with humor in Star Trek. I have a problem when Star Trek parodies itself or it its plot relies on the characters acting completely out of character in order to push the plot forward. I've never been happy with that. And I think this film is guilty of that to a certain degree. Dan, what do you think? 
Well, just the very first time we see the Enterprise and Scotty's giving his engineer's log and he says that I think this new ship was put together by monkeys. Right from that point, I got a problem with it. And it's like a huge, it's a huge miss for me. I don't like the fact that things don't work. The bridge is red alert and, and, <laughs> and stuff is shorting out here and there. And, um, and they have pipes in the middle of corridors and, Scotty hits his head on a low but that's that's going to both the enterprise problem and the parody problem. Those things for me do not work in this movie and it, I love the way that you described it Dayton. It it kind of insults the characters cuz they have to do this. I mean, it's it, it starts on earth with with Chekhov pretending that he's stuck in a blizzard. I mean, it just it doesn't work. The humor is not it's supposed to be funny and it's not funny. It's kind of I don't know if embarrassing is the right word, but that's kind of how I feel watching scenes like that. But to get back to the enterprise, I totally agree. I think it was a total, uh, uh, it was, it was not good to do it the way they did it. Well, you know, you've both talked about the character. So let's, let's go there now. Um, because I felt for a long time, especially with Sulu and Chekhov, that they regressed those characters to a point kind of pre-original series in their development. We spent the last three movies with an amazing character arc for everybody. It was serious. It kind of graduated beyond the television tone of, of the original series. And these two, three, and four were really kind of their own animal as far as movies went. They were mature now. They were sort of the best at what they did. They were seasoned veterans. And in this movie in particular, you get Sulu and Chekhov acting like prepubescent schoolboys because there's a hot Klingon woman. Um, I, or, you know, you get the whole Scotty thing where he walks into a bulkhead he sees coming saying, I know the ship like the back of my hand. Um, whereas I think they did a great job of grad or, or furthering the, the relationship of Kirk, Spock, Bones. I yes. really think they sold the supporting cast short. Um, and in particular, Sulu and Chekhov. I've always thought that. What do you guys think? I Dan. Oh, or Dayton. Go. Oh. No, go, go, go. Wow. Ahead. I went first okay. last time. We'll let Dan go first. All, All right, right, Dan. Thanks. Yeah, um, I totally agree. Um, we, you already hit the nail on the head with Chekhov and Sulu. I found it interesting that Uhura and was so touchy-feely with Scotty in this because that really was not seen during the original series to my recollection as much as it was here. Now we did get to see the beginning of that relationship in Star Trek Continues. They kind of built upon this movie to show that relationship kind of there with Chris Dewan and Kim Stinger. And I thought that was kind of cool. But I'm like, when this first happened, I'm like, what the hell is horror doing? She's like rubbing Scotty's face all over the place and she's dancing naked in the desert. And, and what is going on with that? I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't, you want these characters to, to be immortal and you want them to live forever, but you, you got to look at what was done with these. And I've, I really would love to have been a fly on the wall when these actors who really cherish these characters were reading what they had to do. What were they thinking when they were reading that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Dayton? Don't, don't, don't judge naked desert dancing until you've tried it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Right? Um, makes you think I haven't. Because yeah. <laughs> you, you live in what? Hampshire, Connecticut, somewhere up New there? Hampshire, where there's, there's no deserts for like 2,000 miles from where you live Actually, in any direction. Fun fact, there is a desert of Maine. It's a tourist trap. 
I'm not even kidding. It was it was five minutes from where I lived. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Your face is a tourist trap. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that the uh, the regression of the characters, uh, and I think if if this had been like the second movie instead of the fifth movie, it may not have been as glaring. Uh, but bef- because Star Trek Four did such a wonderful job of giving everybody something important to do to drive yeah. the plot. Um, this does feel like a step backwards for all four of them uh, or all three of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's one, two, three, four. Hang on I'm doing my math four. here. Yeah. Four. All four, four of them. There's those four of them. I don't know why I'm coming up short, but whatever um, it does for all four of them. It seems, it feels like they just, we, we went back to the earliest days of the original series and yeah. uh, which is at this point, a, a, a disservice to the characters because even though they may have been supporting players and only in every other episode back then, by this point, in the mythos, they are a tight group. You know, they've, right. they've, they've given up their, they sacrificed their careers for each other. They've made sacrifices of personal natures and to each other. And I just felt like coming on the heels of Star Trek for it, it just seemed glaringly obvious that we went backwards. Yeah. Um, which is really crazy when you say, cause I also agree with, uh, with Bill, you know, there are some moments between Kirk, Spock and McCoy in this film that are among my very favorite scenes between these three characters and they only work because these three actors know each other and themselves and their role so well that they can make it work. Um, So I, I feel like that was a missed Mm -hmm. opportunity to include the, uh, the, you know, the other, the other four members of the cast to that level. Well, you know, and, and and we'll go here now too, because um, it it makes sense to do so. Let's talk about the, the sort of the big three in this movie, because, um, they really do have the best scenes throughout the entire film. Um, we kind of get here the establishment or the acknowledgement, at least, of Kirk's family, in quotes. I mean, we know he's got one. He's got that famous line at the end of the movie where I lost a brother once. Uh, you know, uh, and you assume he's talking about his brother on Deniba, and he's not. Um, and, but here, it, yeah, <laughs> well, it's not like he's going to know. Right. <laughs> Wow. Too soon? Oh, my God. Too soon? (laughs) Oh, wait. If Shatner put on a fake mustache, then he'd know. My bad. Right. Bill, as usual, we want to tell everyone about our friends Kalia and Jay at Science Division, the makers of the galaxy's first interactive Tribble that you can control with your smartphone. This product is so cool. You know, I love that it takes a life form that we've known for about just over 50 years and finds a new way to make it just awesome. The Science Division Tribble is a must-add to any Star Trek fan's collection. I mean, it just—it doesn't just look great on your desk, though. I mean, these Tribbles are the real deal, and you don't even have to worry about your Quadro Triticale in your storage compartments. Storage compartments? Storage compartments? Sorry. I'm going to do that every time. Uh, You know, whether you use the app or not, your new Tribble is going to be so much fun. The Tribbles have three modes, at ease, where they're happy and content, on duty, which is a random mix and of happy and angry sounds, and watchdog. Well, when that happens, let's just say that the tribbles are dangerous. Wow, really? Come on, buddy. You know that tribbles are not dangerous. But yeah, they'll uh, they'll shriek in your face. Yep. Uh, two in one sentence. Two in one sentence, buddy. That's what it is. Uh, the app also has an attack button, which makes your tribble scream on demand at friends, family, or endlessly blathering, babbling podcast partners. Wow. 
Um, mm. I wonder who you could mean there. Now, you can buy your triple right now at sciencediv.com. And when it arrives, you can download the Section K7 app on your iOS or, or Android phone. You can name your triple and even choose what ship it will be assigned to. And if you order your Tribble today, Science Division is giving Trek Geeks listeners a special $5 off the adoption of your Tribble. So head on over to ScienceDIV.com to place your order. Now, normally these furry little creatures go for $69.99, but if you enter the special code FINALFRONTIER, that's FINALFRONTIER in all caps with no spaces, that code will get you $5 off your adoption. Now, this code is available to use now until July 29th, 2020 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Science Division. Trouble's never been this fun. And we thank our friends at Science Division for sponsoring this week's episode. You just had to find a way to work in more Cyrano Jones, didn't you? I did, and I loved it. You know, what we have here is sort of these guys acknowledging and reinforcing with each other that they are family. And I think to me that's one of the most salient aspects of this entire movie. Uh, as much as I find parts of the camping scene corny and campy, no pun intended, I, I do think that they are probably some of the most endearing moments of these three characters throughout Star Trek Dayton. I think that's some of the most honest, you know, like honest scenes between the characters. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Who, I can't I don't know how much input Shatner had into writing that dialogue between these three characters or if the actors took what was on the page and then played around with it long enough to get that dynamic. But like I said, I, I think it works primarily because of the strength of these three, these three actors and the relationships that they know exist between the characters that they embody. So uh, I, you know, any other three people, it probably wouldn't have worked. Uh, but these, not just the three actors and the three characters, but you know, how we've, how long they've been together and the journey that we've been with them all these years, it works. It's corny. There's a couple of them that are corny and they, and you might even flinch a little bit at a couple of lines of dialogue, but overall I think it works and I'm, and I'm willing to forgive it. I, and that's really what it comes down to. And I think that's what I found with this watching is that I was willing to forgive some of those things. Uh, one, because two of the three participants in those scenes are no longer with us, but the other ones, because they, they add a real humanity to, to those characters, Dan. Oh, I absolutely agree. I love, even though it is campy, like I said, I love the dialogue between them at the campfire, both at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. You get to see, you know, we always know that McCoy is a, is a grumpy doctor and, and you really piss me off, Jim. It's something that you just, I loved hearing that because that's not something you would hear in 1960s television. And then the line, I liked him better before he died. I think that's a, that's a fantastic <laughs> callback, uh, to the move, to the, uh, to the other movies. And, and then later on at the end, that camaraderie that they have, Spock finally has his his instrument, and and Kirk's like, "You gonna pluck that thing on that, or you gonna play something?" I, and and then he starts row row your boat, and it all of that just works and shows that special connection that the three of them have. And and I've you know we've we've read the stories of of who got along and who didn't get along during the filming of the series and the movies. These scenes with the just the three of them are some of the best family moments in the entire Star Trek universe in my mind because they are family and they are people that have spent their entire life and I gotta say I get a little sad when I watched the beginning of this last night because boy does does DeForest look aged in this movie I mean I don't I forget how long it was after this that he passed away but he just looked he looked tired 
to me. And I know he still had Star Trek Six that he did also, but for this one, maybe it was because he had the unif the the non uniform camping. But to me, he just looked he looked he looked old, which is unfortunate. But um, just fantastic scenes with those three. I was just thinking about it. I'm like, this is the first time in five movies that these three characters are together, and it's not about work. It's not yeah. about a crisis. It's not about an emergency. Yeah. It's not about anything. It's just the three of them hanging out. That's why it works for me because yeah. you know it's a completely different dynamic that that we have not seen even rarely on the show itself. Because usually when the three of yeah. them are together in a room somewhere, they're dig they're dealing with the problem of the week. You don't really get downtime with these three characters, and because that's not what the shows are about. Downtime's boring. If I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to be excited about downtime, I'd film myself on the couch watching TV. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's 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 to me is an interesting change up from what we're used to seeing with these three folks. And that's why I think these scenes work. And who would have ever thought that as you're watching Star Trek, that you would see Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy pretty tipsy. I mean, they're, they're slurring their words and Kirk is like, row, do you know, row, 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 row your boat. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that just works. And it, it, it seems normal. These guys have been together so long. They've been, and even McCoy makes the point that we, we get on each other's nerves and space, saving the galaxy. And what do we do when we go on shore leave? We spend it together. There has to be a uh, cut scene or a deleted scene or a deleted page of script. You know, that's Scott McCoy trying to light his own farts. I don't, I, I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> Dan, stop. It's a new rumor. We're going to put that out there. Dan, Let's put that rumor out there. <laughs> Dan, what are you doing? Stop trying to do that. <laughs> Sorry. Again. <laughs> you know, one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, uh, in that campfire scene, whenever McCoy gets a little booze in him, he turns into immediately uh, a, a grumpy southerner. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't matter. I and mean, he just gets a little bit in him and he's just, he's done. He's like, he goes full on Georgia. And it's like, dude, you got to rein that in. <laughs> You'll that draw with a You'll butter knife, bro. <laughs> yeah. A whole generation of McCoys. <laughs> it's like molasses coming out of your mouth. <laughs> he does it in um, uh, one of the early the Side of Paradise. What, yeah, yeah where, of he's, Paradise. where he's yeah, he's like yeah. He, and the, and that Southern Doctor draw comes out. It's I mean, it's it's yeah, like either enough. he's drunk or he's pissed. Whichever t- <laughs> one of those two, and if it's the same, if it's both of them at the same time, watch out. It's uh, oddly enough, sounds a lot like Dan when he gets a couple of margaritas in him. I'm just saying. Oh, I don't know. Um, there were a lot of little <laughs> for the men. Yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of little <laughs> moments in this movie that that I really like. Um, there, <laughs> it's you know, Dayton, you mentioned earlier the humor. When it works, it works. When it doesn't, it's just like, oh, dude, really? Mm-hmm. Um, but but some of the littler moments I really appreciate are things like hold your horse, Captain. <laughs> Which is a great, I mean, Shatner was going to find a way to get horses in this movie. I get it. Um, but sort of, it, it, it's a one-off. It's a one-liner. It ought to mean nothing at all. But every time I hear that particular line, I smile from ear to ear just because it, it's like a dad joke. Um, are, are there any of those other moments for you guys that sort of stand out as things that maybe are really small, but you really, really love? Dayton? Well, it's my problem with some of the humor is that they get the part that makes me laugh. And then it's like some of the not so good Saturday Night Live skits where they overstay their welcome and they go one more. And I'm like, if you should have just stopped, you know, it's like 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 
like the bit where they're trying to break out of the brig and, you know, Spock is very calmly trying to explain to Captain Kirk why it's not going to work. And they found the most intelligent person they could find. And, you know, it's, it must be me. You know, we all know what he's talking about, but of course they have to overplay the joke and over explain the joke. So that humor starts off kind of funny and then, and then goes off the rails and uh, just little things like that. I mean, it's, uh, it, I think it had a good intentions. And then again, they just, you probably should have just stopped a few seconds short of trying to drag that out. Yeah. Speaking of dragging things out, Dan. Wow. <laughs> I, I like, um, uh, I like the thing that I love the hold your horse. That's one of my favorite ones, but also right before that Kirk's Spock. Yes. Captain be one with, be the, one horse. with the horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Captain. <laughs> I've always liked that one. Makes me laugh. That made my wife laugh. Um, I, I I agree with what you say, uh, Dayton. In that same scene, they explain he did have pointed ears, but then the whole Morse code thing, right? And the stand back and the don't you know a jailbreak when you see one? Mm-hmm. That's one of the ones that they overstep their welcome, a hundred percent. And that is the the most horrific explosion shape in a wall <laughs> that's supposed to be an explosion that I have ever seen in my life. I think it was supposed to be Wiley Coyote, and it just overcut. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, you know, you watch that thing on Blu-ray; it looks like drywall. It does. <laughs> it does like, or cardboard <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. I I have to agree. As soon as you get the stand back, like, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, yeah, what could, what could that either. possibly be? <laughs> like, and, and I love how everybody in the future can just recall Morse code like that. Um, in any iteration of right. Star Trek, I was like, oh, it's this old ancient code now. called Morse code. I think that's an A. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that always happens. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I really appreciate is the big moment that Chekhov gets, even though I, admittedly, I am not the biggest Chekhov fan as a character. He was my least favorite character in the original series. I copped to that immediately. But the whole scene where he gets to be captain of the Enterprise is set up mm-hmm. beautifully. So Kirk says, yep, we're going down to Nimbus 3. Let's form an assault team. He taps Sulu on the shoulder. He says, McCoy, Spock, you're with me. He says, zero to Chekhov. I imagine that Chekhov gets in the chair and goes, uh-huh. All right. I got this <laughs> Ice one. cream for dinner. <laughs> Ice cream for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> that's where he cooks up the whole, this is Captain Babel Chekhov of the USS Enterprise, um, and, and goes with that route. Because it's brilliant, um, but I got to think that Chekhov's going, oh, I know how I'm going to get through this one. <laughs> that's that's really interesting because I have the complete opposite feeling really? about that scene. I think that that is just – I'm sure this isn't what happened, but in my mind – they have the whole blizzard in the into the communicator thing, and this is was the writing's writer's way to make up for that crap. Oh, let's make him captain for a few minutes, and he can sit there and delay Cybok from from the uh, knowing that there's an assault team coming out. I thought it was just a cheap way for for Walter to do something other than be a stooge. That's literally what okay. I think of it. <laughs> yeah. You may not be wrong, uh, Dayton. I'm going to guess you probably fall somewhere in the middle. I'm in the middle. I, I think it's a cute scene, and it, it does give uh, you know Chekhov some much needed uh, serious time on the camera. And just like it also made me remember one of my other favorite lines from Sulu. Yeah, in the in the movie when they're making the escape and they're trying to get away from the Klingon ship and they have to fly it in manually, and you know Cybok's like, "You've done this before, right?" And Chekhov and our Sulu's like, "Actually, it's my first attempt." And I cracked up at that one because I just love his expression. His expression is what sells it. It's not <laughs> yeah. the greatest. Line. 
his delivery is perfect. Um, actually, it's my fr- yeah. I'd, I'd pucker up too. Um, <laughs> so that 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 works for me in that one. And, and I thought I think the Chekhov scene works more than it does it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll be in the middle, but I'm leaning more toward Bill on that one. That's, we'll yeah. take it. That's fine. That's good. Um, no, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I definitely want to accentuate some of these things that really do work because I think that this movie gets a whole lot of, well, this sucks and that sucks and that stinks and this is just not realistic. Um, I think that the best scene in the movie and arguably some of the best acting in the movie is the whole scene in the observation lounge, for want of a better word, where Cybok reveals to Bones and Spock their pain. Um, I, I think that scene with McCoy's father in particular, even in 1989 leveled me, I was in the theater with tears streaming down my face because that whole scene is just perfection. D Kelly gets to do the best thing he's ever done as Dr. McCoy. And he gets to experience a range of emotions from caregiver to son. And he nails it the whole damn way. It, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. I think that knowing that McCoy lives with that pain now in hindsight is really kind of interesting to go back and watch some of, you know, the original series because it makes me wonder if that moment ever entered into his calculus, Dayton. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We don't, I don't, I don't know that we know when it took place in right. McCoy's past. Right. So we don't know where it may have factored into his, psyche or how he views medicine but i i part of me believes it had to have happened before he was on the enterprise and it drives him to be a human you know he's 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 very reluctant to let humanity out of the practice of medicine he's always he's more about the, the personal connection with his patient versus trusting the machine and uh he he's much more hands-on and that kind of thing i i would like to think that's what drives him or at least part of what drives him. I don't know that it's necessarily the, de- the the defining moment of his character, but I do think it it may very well have informed the way he practices medicine from that point on. Uh, so for that, and like you said, D. Kelly absolutely nails it. It's it's probably it's in the running for perhaps my favorite scene in the whole film. In the whole film, yeah, same uh, here. Dan, what about you? I know that's got to rank high up there. Well, people may remember I used to say that I didn't like this scene. Yeah. Um, I used to think that, that D overacted. Yes. No. Yes. That type of thing. This is going to be hard for me to get through this scene. Now that I've watched it and I'm older now, I have a lot more appreciation for uh, the things I used to not like in Star Trek. And I really appreciate them. Now this story being one and this scene being number one, um, that scene to me is absolutely gut wrenching. I never appreciated it before, and I'm really sorry that I didn't. And I got to say, with everything going on with my dad right now, as Bill knows, that scene completely crushed me last night when I watched it. I didn't know how to react. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is and, – and I don't think he overacted it at all now, watching it with a new set of, uh, of eyes, I guess you could say. And – not only is it my favorite scene in the movie, and that's kind of, it may kind of seem a little blase to say that after I've only seen it yesterday, but that better appreciation, appreciation I have for it. Not only is it the best scene I think of that movie, I think that's McCoy's best scene in the history of Star Trek. Yeah. Period. Hands yeah. down. I think, uh, yep. I think my appreciation for the scene has changed, um, in recent years because since the movie came out, I've had to deal 
uh, with sitting by waiting for the death of a parent. Yeah. yeah. Sitting at my parents' side while they fade away. Right. And so, yeah, it's a different, it's a different, yeah, it's a definitely a different observation, different perspective when you yeah. can carry that with you. It's, 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 uh, and I don't think he overacted it. I think if, given now the context with with what he was facing and the pressure Mm -hmm. he was under and the guilt he was feeling it's perfectly in line d kelly knew exactly what he was doing yeah now on on the flip side bill if i may yeah talk about spock scene for just a minute yeah let's do it talk about the humor side of that whole scene between the two characters because i know the vulcans have strong ties to their past which is great they're advanced, though. Last time I checked, they're an advanced species. They have technology, <laughs> but yet we have a Vulcan princess giving birth to a uh, to Spock on a slab in some cave, huh? <laughs> this fits. This fits my Go golden ahead. rule that there are always caves in Star Trek. <laughs> Vulcan's been yeah. sort of. Vulcan's been sort of split on this from the beginning. You know, yeah. they're a very, they're a technologically advanced civilization. They obviously have had space travel for hundreds of years before humans figured it out. And yet, you know, they still resort to battles to the death for your wife. <laughs> oh, things like that. So it's, you know, and, and there's a lot of mysticism and ritual and ceremonies involved in, in some of their, you know, their, their culture. So I don't know that it's so far afield. Okay. Um, uh, let me ask you this. Do you think they purposely had somebody try to sound as much like Mark Leonard as possible with those two words? Because I always think it's Mark Leonard saying, so human. If it's not Mark Leonard, it's like the best Mark Leonard. It's Kevin Pollack impersonating Mark Leonard. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure. I've heard, I've heard, and I've, to be honest, I've never even thought to go back and look at the credits. But uh, mm. my understanding is, is, is it's not Mark Leonard. I could very well be wrong. Yeah, I, uh, I prefer to think of that slab that 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 a, that Amanda gives birth on as sort of being in the back corner of the Catrick arc. Uh, it's 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 the birthing cave, um, and it's it's you know comfortably fashioned with uh, with the the pelt of Salot. Um On the side you can't see because it's on the northernmost side, um, and um, it's it's very warmly lit. What you couldn't hear were the uh, the relaxation sounds. Uh, because Amanda was screaming over them. <laughs> no, no, not buying yeah. it. I'm not buying it. Man. Oh, sorry. you know what? I just realized. I'm sorry. I said it was Vulcan princess. That was Cybox mother. That was Amanda. That's yeah. That was Amanda. Correct, so. Yeah. All right. Well. Oh yeah. She's a human. She deserves to be in the cave. Never mind. Well, but there was a Vulcan princess <laughs> standing over her, watching her well, give birth. True. Like, yeah. all right, you better do this right, because <laughs> you're only getting one shot at this human. <laughs> It's going to be in the trill pool for you if you. Maybe it was just they had crappy healthcare. I mean, (laughs) you know, I don't know. This is why the Trek geeks are never going to be, you know, anywhere near writing Italian novel because our ideas are terrible. Mm, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Just throwing that out there. But I I think that there's a lot to be said about that scene. I mean, the humor aside, it astounds me that Vulcans carry the memory from birth. Yes. Yeah, that's got to be crazy, right? Yeah. 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 I just, uh, I think about that and I'm like going, so Spock knew of his father's, I don't want to say disapproval, but sort of ambivalence toward him from the moment he was born. And that is like, whoa, that makes Sarah, Sarah even, you know, more of a, a father of the year candidate um, in some circles. 
I don't know that it's ambivalence. I think it's, and I, I mean, because we've seen the nature of the relationship between these two, and it's not that Sarek doesn't love his son or isn't proud of his son. It's that he's just torn with how to show that okay. because he's so locked into Vulcan culture and Vulcan expectations for individuals. And yet here is this, you know, this screaming ball of humanity that's been dropped into his arms and his wife is, you know, yelling and, and hates him for everything that she's done to him or he's done to her. So, I mean, I, I think he's just, I think he's just at the, at that moment, he's, struggling with how to conduct himself and then eventually he figures it out but i don't ever get the sense that that sarek has ever been has ever not been proud of spock he just didn't know how to show i mean let's not let him off the hook here sarek was very at the very least a challenging father figure okay <laughs> i think i think we've had enough star trek straight that sarek probably didn't win a lot of dad of the year awards yeah um, and, and and you're right I'll, I, ambivalence is probably the wrong word but uh yeah dad of the year he's not uh by any means uh, dan um what about you i mean do you think that uh this says more about sarek than than anything else yeah uh i do i mean we it's easier to say how we feel about it now in this conversation we just had in the last two minutes based on what we've seen with discovery and how Sarek is with Michael yeah. and then how, and, yeah. and the, the discussions with Spock and the, and the flashbacks and stuff like that. I think it would be a little bit more harder to come up with any definitive uh, explanation as to that literally what seven seconds of Sarek and, and Star Trek five to, to say what he's really thinking. But I think now that we have a much more better understanding of Sarek, if you want to call it that for in, in discovery, I think it's, I think it's okay to say it the way that it was said. Yeah. I, I have to agree with you there. I, I really appreciate that, that Kirk took the very Kirk like stance of, um, I don't need to be taken on a guided tour of my pain, uh, to paraphrase, because that's exactly what I would expect James T. Kirk to do. The whole I need my pain. Um, I still use um, the 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 analogy of turning left when I should have turned right uh, in normal everyday conversation when I do something wrong. Um, and I, I appreciate the fact that they got these characters so right in this scene in the end because it's just so very Star Trek, that entire sequence. Um, and, and I think that's that's that scene alone is probably why this movie is elevated for me over the last several years. Uh, for all of those reasons that we just discussed. Um, we, we mentioned, Dan, you mentioned briefly the discovery tie-in. I appreciate the fact that we have Sarek a little more rounded out. I love to um, point out to people who may not be fans of discovery um, that this is just another instance of Spock withholding information until it was absolutely necessary. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, like we didn't know who his parents were until they were literally standing right next to his best friend. Yeah. Which actually does not speak well to Kirk because you would have expected that he would look at the dude's service record when he came on board and he goes, Hey, you know, my first officer's daddy is a Federation ambassador. That might come in handy one of these days. I should probably remember that info nugget. Oh, it's note to self. Wonder who and, he is. I wonder who he might be. You know, I mean, I, that doesn't, but that's just the nature. Of, if we, if, you know, we have to go outside the box here. That's just the way episodic TV was written. Yeah. And so, I mean, but yes, if we're going to look at this organically as an actual thing that actually happened, Kirk doesn't come off looking good during that whole, although these guys are my parents. Well, no shit. 
oh, excuse me. <laughs> you, know? you know, so. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's right. Uh-oh. I have to write down that time index, Mr. Potty Mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you put a cool sound effect in like a phaser blast or something when it. Uh... That's uh, that's typically what five year mission does. We'll have to do that. Um, that's a good idea. That's like that's that. a great idea. Um, yeah. No, but I, we... I go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, you know what we haven't talked about yet? What? Cyborg. We're, I'm getting there. This well, is sort right. of a, a segue I... into it all. You usually call me the master of segues and, and here we go. There you go. So why don't you just uh, drink your margarita or your martini or whatever that is, and we'll, t- we'll talk about uh, the infamous half-brother who gets a haircut before he goes to meet God, and that's <laughs> Cybok. Um, all right, so through 90% of the movie, dude's got space mullet. Yep. When he steps off the Copernicus, he's high and tight in the back. I'm just going to throw yep. that out there. He went and stopped to see the ship's barber before he got in the shuttlecraft. Just saying. They never, they never explain that, do they? It just, just kind of nope. happens. I, I noticed yeah. it last night. I'm like, wait a minute. When he's like, when he's looking at Spock and, and Spock has the gun and Kirk yells, shoot him. He's like, face. I mean, he's got hair everywhere. His beard is all sticking out. And I'm like, wait a second. When did that happen? <laughs> you got to go see God. I better primp and park myself, get myself all nice and looking good for God. <laughs> got to make myself look good for the Almighty. That's right. I got to say, Cybok is played so well by Larry Luckinbill, um, who, side note, uh, I don't know if he still is, but at the time, husband of of Lucy Arnaz, daughter of Lucille Ball. So so there's your TOS uh, Desilu Studios tie-in. But Larry Luckinbill is fantastic as Cybok, and I think he creates... Really a, a well-rounded character that kind of holds up the mantra, beware of the laughing Vulcan, Dayton. I'm, you know, and I don't know how many don't know this, but Shatner's first choice to play Cyborg was Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, of course, Sean Connery was not available because he was doing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which also came out the same summer this film mm-hmm. came out. Which is, and, and in fact, the, 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 the planet that they go visit, Shakari, is a play on Sean Connery's name. Right. And so, but... I and so I have imagined. I've tried to imagine what this role would be like with Sean Connery playing it, <laughs> and I can't do it. I can't. I mean, I've tried, but I, I just come up with like S- Space Marco Ramius from Red October or something. I can't. I mean, I can't. I can't get there the way that Larry Luckinbill Luckinbill does. Um, I I just can't see him in the role. I mean, I think I think Mr. Luckinbill did a fine job with what he was given. Spock. It's me. <laughs> You've been waiting all day for that, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> Practice that in the see, mirror and everything. Now, see, I, I, I don't know if I just forgot about it, but I, I don't remember that aspect of the casting. So when you said that, I was just like, "What?" So then, automatically, when Sean Connery mode, <laughs> release Sorry. your pain, Highlander. Yeah, <laughs> ah, there you go. I, I guess the cl- yeah. I'm trying to picture. I'm trying to come up with a character that's very that's anywhere near. Cyborg, yep. and I guess Ramirez from Highlander is kind of sort of it, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think a little bit. I mean, I think he kind of has to have a little bit of Ramirez, although still casting a Scottish guy as Ramirez seems a little weird. Just going <laughs> to throw that out there. That's in the casting Highlander podcast. English. Yeah, it's like yeah. casting an English got to be a French guy. What, uh, Star Trek, right? That right? would never do. So, that. Talk to Norm about that one. Certainly wouldn't do it twice. No, it, never. It, it, <laughs> 
it's funny. I don't remember a lot of other things that Mr. Luckinbill was in. The one thing that I do remember him in, other than Star Trek V, and the only other thing I remember ever seeing him in, is he played Elizabeth Shue's character's father in the Tom Cruise movie Cocktail. Yes. yes. And when I made that connection, when I first saw Cocktail, I like freaked out because I'm like, that's Cyborg. That's the only thing I've seen him in. We'd well, like to I, thank. We'd yeah. like to thank Dan for reminding us that Cocktail is an actual movie that exists. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> you know. Well, see, and then I go to the fact that Brian Brown is in that movie, and Brian Brown is in one of my favorite films of all time, which is Breaker Morant. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we go, di- you know, diverging into uh, other paths in the uh, the the movie podcast coming from the Trek Geeks Network in 2030. 20, Stay tuned. 20, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to you. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. We'll watch them all. Um, but no, Cybok, I, I think that Larry Luckinbill, if I look at, go back to Cybok as a cult leader, I think he does a really effective job of playing it in that kind of way. If I, if I boil it down to Shatner's original thought of televangelist, I think he's kind of there. Um, I think he's probably a little more, uh, I think it's probably a little more unbelievable necessarily. Um, but Cybok definitely has that charisma. Yeah. Um, I'm almost surprised they made him a Vulcan and Spock's half brother, to be honest, because I think he could have been anybody. He could have just here's been. Th- yeah, go ahead, Dan. No, no. I was going to say, here's the thing, though. If he didn't have this power, the psychic ability that he has, he'd be nothing. In my opinion, nobody would have followed him. They would all just thought he was a nut job. Yeah. But but does he? I mean, is it a psychic ability or is it just the freedom from a lifetime of burdensome pain? Because that freedom in itself is incredibly um, uh, intoxicating to some extent. Will people go to that? I think this is the question the movie asks for me today, is will people go to those lengths when they have been freed of the ultimate burden in their lives? And that's really what this movie has made me consider over the past couple of weekends. Um, I throw that out there for general consumption. So you possibly... Go ahead, Dayton. Go ahead. No, no, please. You're the no, oh, no. I mean, where's a log here? I think there's a leg. I think there's a bit of psychic uh, shenanigans going on with his okay. Vulcan abilities. Um, I mean, I don't know that he's necessarily being too intrusive, but I think he might be helping grease the skids a little bit. That's yeah. I mean, he. I, I think that the, the person, you know, the 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 subject of his uh, efforts does the heavy lifting i think he just helps him find help that person find the path a little bit more because otherwise the idea that i can talk to a guy and i'm all of a sudden just free of all the guilt and shame that i've carried my entire life doesn't doesn't ring true i mean people go to therapists all the time and if it was that quick there'd be no therapists that are rich because no you know okay um you know they i i i can't be solved i can't have my problem solved until my therapist gets a brand new lamborghini in another house on the hamptons okay (laughs) so and believe me i can keep them occupied for days but i just think that i I, so i think there's probably a little bit of uh and if i'm if i'm not mistaken i think there this touches this is touched on in the novelization but i haven't read the thing in 20 years yeah Uh, but so he does sort of use his vulcan abilities to tap into their psyche just a little bit but it's not wholesale manipulation. It's just more like guiding them onto the path and then letting them go the rest of the way. Okay. I can see um, both sides of the coin. Cause one of the reasons I've always thought he had a special power is because whenever he started talking, you heard that subtle heartbeat sound. Uh, mm. 
And so I'm like, okay, he's tapping into something. But on the same, on the other side of the coin, guys, is how many times have we seen these televangelists who don't have any psionic powers to be able to walk up to somebody and just touch them on the forehead and go healed and boom, they're the best people in the world. So it's that power of manipulation possibly as well. I don't know. I I I I think they had to have something. Otherwise, people who are I do too generally strong willed, and uh, I mean McCoy is a strong willed individual. Yeah. Um. It's, in fact, this actually harkens back to some of what we were talking about earlier about how there's a kind of a disservice done to some of the characters because they just seem so easily manipulated. Yeah. But not so much that he frees them of their pain and makes them feel better about whatever it is that they're harboring, but that they turn loyalist to him so quickly. Right. You know, they've been with they've been with Kirk for twenty years, but this guy makes them feel good for a few minutes, and boom, we've switched sides. I'm like that that doesn't ring right for me for any of the characters. Yeah, yeah. and so I'm glad they figured it out at the end. But I appreciate now that this movie, you know, some thirty one years later, um, elicits conversations like these because I certainly didn't think about it in these terms when I watched it in '89 or '99 or even 2009. Um, I I I like that. It is, it's holding up the tradition of Star Trek in that sense where it makes us think about these things. And I think that that is the newfound respect I have for the final frontier. Um, so I, I guess in, in wrapping it up, I guess I'll pose this question to you guys. And it's kind of a two part question. Does this movie deserve the reputation it has in fandom? And has your own view on this movie changed? in the last 15 years or so Dayton will start with you. Uh, yeah. My opinion has changed f- toward the positive over the yeah. last 15 years. Um, I'm like you, I was left cold originally. And then I had to kind of go back and realize there's, there are things to love in this film. There are things to be bothered by. There are things that this thing does, that this film does not do well, but I, it, it, it is compensated by some of the things that I still love about the film. Um, as for your other question, does it deserve its reputation? No, I don't think it, like I said, I, I think it's for casual fans or for people who are tangentially associated with Star Trek. It's an easy answer to get into the, to get in the group. It's like, Oh yeah, Star Trek five, we're Star Trek movie. Spock's brain, we're Star Trek episode. No, you're not, you're not trying hard enough. It's an easy answer, you know? So take those off the table and make them work a little harder for that. Um, but there are things about this film that I think are are just among the best offerings that the films offer, like the music. We didn't get a chance to talk about the music. Oh, yeah. This is this is one of my very favorite Jerry Goldsmith scores, mm-hmm. yeah. not just Star Trek, but period. Yeah. Um, the mountain, the opening, the opening music for that. Those scenes where Kirk is climbing. Yeah. That is some of the most beautiful music Goldsmith has ever written. It's gorgeous, I will right? die on that hill. Yep. Um, so I just yeah, there's just there's things there now. As soon as I say that, then we get to the scene where the, the you know the poor special effects do it does a disservice to the enterprise. But that's you know that's a different conversation, <laughs> and maybe well, its own podcast. So I, well, you know, anytime oh, anytime ILM is tied up and you get Brand Farron and Associates, um, who <laughs> even the first substitutes, you know? yeah, who, who apparently like to work a lot with liquids to form clouds, um, <laughs> yeah, and food coloring. Um, yeah, not the best special effects bonanza. Um, the effects definitely do not hold up. If they were ever going to redo the effects for a movie, I would hope it would be this one. Uh, oh yeah. I think we're probably, that ship has sailed, but I I learned to, I've learned to never say never when it comes to Star Trek. So Dan, what about you? Does, does this movie deserve the reputation and how's your feeling on it evolved? 
Well, before I get into that, I did want to point out one other thing in the movie that I think is extremely important, and that's what I thought was possibly a budding romantic relationship between St. John Talbot and Caitlin Dar. Because if you notice, when they're on the Enterprise Bridge during the battle scenes, they're always together, they're always holding each other. At one point, Talbot's on the ground, and she's taking care of him. And then later in the observation lounge, they're kind of like shoulder to shoulder, and, you know, <laughs> looks like things are going really well for them. So Dayton... I think that's a possible novelization there coming and what happens with them. And maybe you could have a couple of red shirts named Davidson and Smith finally doing something. <laughs> anyway. they, must have, they must have been doing something while Cyborg was getting a haircut. That's right. <laughs> so, no, in all seriousness, though, uh, my opinion on this movie has They run the changed. salon. <laughs> <laughs> that's before Mr. Mott. Yeah. Um, yeah. My opinion on this movie has changed tenfold in just the 24 hours since I've seen it. Um, I have to say the story is amazing and it's one of the most Star Trek stories that, that is out there. And I know that's kind of a cliche thing to say because we say it a lot, but it really is. I got to say the special effects are the one glaring problem in this movie. Uh, they just don't hold up. They didn't hold up then. They don't hold up now. As a matter of fact, last night we were watching my wife, Sue, sitting with me watching it. And when Kirk fell off El Capitan and you see that scene fa- of him falling and then Spock chasing him, she got up and said, yep, I'm done. Enjoy the movie. And off she went. So the special effects killed it for her. Um, but if you take away the special effects and focus in on on what the story really is, it there's it is not anywhere close to the to the bottom of the list. I think I've ranked Nemesis as my least favorite. Bill, if I'm not you mistaken, have. yours is Generations. Absolutely. Um. So, uh, yeah. At least these two uh, hosts don't think Star Trek Five is down there that 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 low. It's not nearly as low as Dan Davidson. Um. <laughs> I, I mean, there are a bunch of aspects of this film that you just can't get to in an hour, an hour and change. Yeah. So, um, if you're listening to this and you say, "Hey, what about?" Then hit us up on social media, comment on the post, or tweet at us at Trek Geeks, and uh, we'll do our best to continue the conversation that way. But as far as conversations go, Dayton, it has been our honor and pleasure to have you back to Trek Geeks. Um, it, always a great conversation with you, and we love to t- talk with you any chance we get. How may other folks um, find you online? You can find me at DaytonWard.com. Uh, that is my landing page for all kinds of useless content that i put out there on my blog and my facebook page and my twitter handle and my instagram page and i write for star trek.com and all kinds of other cool things if you're you know have absolutely nothing else to do with your time check it out datemore.com and of course go out there and get agents of influence available at your favorite bookseller right this very instant well dan we'd also want to thank our friends the band five-year mission uh without whom we just wouldn't have any music really um And we're grateful for the music that we get to use because we love every single one of their albums. We want everyone to head on out to fiveyearmission.net down, or sorry, get the CDs for all their albums. Yeah. Get that physical media in your hands and become a huge fan of Five Year Mission. I mean, we love them so much that they even now have a podcast on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network, Dan. And did What's you it know called? it? Did you know it's called Five Year Mission, the podcast? Oh, the brains behind the, the, the great podcasts of this generation. It's amazing. What separates Trek Geeks from all the other Star Trek podcast networks is is the marketing. 
<laughs> but no, come back for that. <laughs> I know. Head on out to fiveyearmission.net, get all their CDs, and become a huge fan because Dan and I are ourselves. Year one, year two, year three, year four, Trouble with Tribbles, Spock's Brain, and soon to be year five. That's a lot of five-year mission music, and we love them. Lot. Lots. You know, I got to say, we just had a fantastic conversation today, my friend. It was, it was, it was such a good conversation that I just, I just want to burst out into song. But I won't, even Thank though you. my heart is full of love and, and full of happiness. Cybok took away my pain and, and showed me the way to the ultimate place for happiness where five-year music is heard all the time and just fills your heart with joy. The Klingons call it Kritu, the Romulans Vortavor. But five-year mission fans will always know it as Shafark Ri. And that's where I am. Shafark Ri. Shafark Ri. Shafark Ri. Shafark Ri. Maybe if you just try putting the emphasis on a different syllable, <laughs> you'll get through but, it. Uh, that, but that's nothing more than sabotage. Sabotage. Sabotage and tranquility. Peace and tranquility. But, you know, um, let's not get away from what I was saying. Shafark Ri, it is a very wonderful place, and, and it's not fake. There's no alien being hidden on a planet. It's real, real, real paradise. Shafark Ri. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I can't wait to see Fark change his, uh, his, his Twitter name to that. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Oof. Greeting, Shylander. Um, <laughs> anyway, fiveyearmission.net. Go get all their albums. Please just do it. We beg you. Of course, Dan, we want to remind everyone listening, you can support the Trek Geeks Podcast Network via Patreon. There you can see uh, our brand new 2020 annual subscriber pin, the upcoming uh, annual t-shirt that uh, our subscribers are going to get at various levels, and uh, of course, Dan, raw audio of all of our podcasts, plus some other perks we got going on. There's perks. Well, we'll let the people join up and find out what those perks are, because uh, right now we want to take a moment to thank our associate producers for Trek Geeks, and we are just so grateful for their support. So thank you, Adam Sanders, Brandon Everidge, Heather Sohn, John Krikorian, Trey Womack, Sean Lynn, Tim Robertson, Tim Sedar, Vikram Bhatt, Greg Rozier, Andy Fark, Kimberly Francis, Ron Robel, Brooke Horton, Jim McMahon, Luke Burnham, Eric Sakian, Lisa Tomlinson, Jamie Greger, Brad DeMag, William Edward M. Jr., Dave Andrews, Aaron Mollenkoff, Jonathan Hamilton, and the gracious and wonderful Conrad Hutchins. Thank you, Stewie. We also want to thank our producers of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network for their support. They are Ken Tripp, Casey Shafsky, Charlie Mulvey, Chris Trebuzio, Craig Ewing, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Leonel Marchand, Matt McGonigal, Mike Bovia, Sean O'Halloran, Peter Craig, Ken Bird, Jamie Rogers, David Hood, Rachel Delaney, Kyle Castillo, Chaz Bradshaw, Kimberly Hartman, Christina Werther, Steph Lescue, and the lovely and talented Jess Fashon. You too can become producer of the Trek Geeks Network, and it is so easy to do. Just head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks today for all the details. Dan, next week, it is the return of the ultimate Trek Geeks fan favorite as we continue our year-long celebration of Voyager 25. But I'm here every week, Bill. You're not, though. You oh, weren't no. here last week, jerk. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, these episodes and discussions have become a staple here on Trek Geeks, and we are ready to tackle another Voyager-tastic season. And joining us for a memorable conversation about the first season with Seven of Nine will be Voyager superfan and great friend to both Bill and I, Marina Kravchuk, co-host of the Shoreleaf podcast on the Tricorder Transmissions Network. 
That's right. It is See It or Skip It Voyager Season 4 next week on Trek Geeks, the flagship of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. I am looking forward to it. We got a lot of good episodes coming up in Season 4, man. I tell you what. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. This is going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be so awesome. Uh, Dan, for more great Star Trek discussion, we want everyone to check out the other member podcasts of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. Like Rewind, for example, this week they're dropping an episode about the classic TNG episode Cupid. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Yes, Sarah yes. and Haley always do a hilarious show over at Rewind, so we hope everybody checks that out. You can find Rewind and all of our other shows by visiting trekgeeks.com slash listen. And of course, for all the news on all the Star Trek CEO, please visit our great friends at treknews.net. For now, this has been episode number 225 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your coconut. Share it with me. <laughs> and gain strength from the sharing? <laughs> nice way to end it. Music for Trek Geeks is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original series. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast, is a production of Coconut Media Works, executive producer Bill Smith. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and discoveringtrek.com. Bing bong. Bing bong, bing bong. Oh, wait. Wrong bing, tune. bing, 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 bing bong. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Bonk, bonk on the head. No. That's a different song. That's the theme to Stump the Geek. Oh, right. You know, I got faith of the heart. Coming up later this year, we have Stump the Geek <laughs> Infinity, by the way. Oh, joy. Does that mean I'm going to sit there and have dead air forever? There's never dead air. <laughs> I hope not, because Mumphrey. That's would why go there's crazy. the match game theme. Uh, well, it's dead air when we're doing it, so it makes me think it. Yeah, that's well, that's your you, editing skills. You misunderestimate, and I use that word on purpose. I use that word on purpose. <laughs> you misunderestimate how much people love Stump the Geek. I must, because I, when I, when we do it, I'm like, oh my god, people must still be so bored with this. Dude, we get more positive feedback on Stump the Geek than we do for any other episode. All right. Okay. Well, it's because they wish they were all like me. The people want it. Well, the people will get it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they will. And if they want that, then they must (laughs) definitely want Geek the Stump. No, I don't think they do. (laughs) They know that, you know, Teen Jeopardy is not as good as Real Jeopardy. It's like uh, it's like the Muppet Babies versus the Muppets. Never liked the Muppet Babies. I see. I was old enough to not watch Muppet Babies, so I'm wondering what the hell you've been doing. Oh, I never watched them. I just I saw like the commercials for them. Like that looks dumb. I, I'll tell you what. Scooter as a cartoon Muppet looked just pathetic. So no different. <laughs> wow. No. Okay. Speaking of Muppets, I gotta. You know, my mind just stuff just pops in. I get like mind. Tourette's. It's it's ridiculous. So the other day I'm listening to the Muppet movie soundtrack because I love it. The original one oh, back yeah. in the Absolutely. back in the early day. And after the soundtrack ended, I was listening on YouTube, and Bohemian Rhapsody by the Muppets came on. 
And if you have never watched the YouTube video for the Bohemian Rhapsody by the Muppets, you have to watch it because I'll tell you the part where they say, you know, I'll, I won't sing it. I'll say what they say, Mama, blah, 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 blah. Well, Mama Mia, let me does, go. No, um, uh, Mama, uh, just killed oh, just a man. Just killed a man. Just killed, yeah, just killed a man. That part is sung by Animal. <laughs> and dude, I was listening to it. I was up in the loft. And I had it on while I was working, and I'm just laughing to myself. And my wife keeps saying, what are you laughing at? And I tried to tell her, and I did my impersonation. She didn't think it was funny. (laughs) How long have you been married now? 16 years. In fairness, your wife has been saying, what are you laughing at for 16 years? (laughs) Let's be honest. 16 and a half, actually. 16 and three quarters, when you want to really get down to it. I'm not wrong. You're not wrong at all. I'm just trying to deflect. <laughs> Ole. <laughs> Absolutely. Send the kids to school. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, uh, so anyway, it was funny. So if you haven't checked it out, pull up that YouTube video because Animal, I, he was always one of my favorites growing up. And when he starts singing that mama, and then he's like, at one time, he's like, da-da. <laughs> it's just, it's great. It's great. Anyway, what do you have I, to talk about? Um, not, no, how do I follow that up, honestly? Um, I, uh, I, I have to, well, let me Google this cause I have to look this up. I don't know what the count is. Okay. What are we counting? Uh, days since Friday the 13th. Oh gosh. I think we're at like 120 something maybe. Oh no. one thirty. Wow. Okay. So, so third just, of a year, just, uh, just over four months. Yeah. Um, yeah. Third of a year. Um, I, I know there have been a lot of people out there to whom the the sort of uh, well, even it's not really a quarantine per se. It's mm-hmm. not really a stay at home, but we'll call it the quarantine mindset, for want of a better phrase. I know it's getting to a lot of people. It gets to me on on some days and not others. Mm-hmm. And um, it, just know everyone out there, you're you're not alone. You really are not. Nope. Um, Dan and I both have good days. We both have bad days. I'm sure. Um, there are days where I figure like, feel like this is never going to end. And there are other days like, yep, I got this. You know, there's a story that my wife was telling me today about, uh, my wife's, a, 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 a she does Spartan races. She's part of the obstacle course racing community. And there's a guy who he's an elite athlete. Um, not very old. He came down with COVID-19, got admitted to the hospital, put on a respirator. Three days later, he, he died. Wow. And this is a guy who. Who, who does massive amounts of, of Spartan races in OCR. Oh. So um, wear your damn mask is, is, is the least of things. But um, we're, uh, we're all going to experience this differently. We, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you're feeling like it's, it's, just, it's getting to you, just put on some Star Trek or put on some yep. Trek Geeks or some Rewind or some Five-Year Mission or Polytrex or whatever – Whatever's going to get you through it and know that we're all feeling the same way right about now. Absolutely. I'm glad you actually told that story because I know people and have read about a lot of people that don't believe in this, the seriousness of this issue. And every time that somebody dies, the response is always, oh, well, they must have had an underlying issue. That is just not the case. And I wish people would understand that. You can be in perfect health, you can get this thing, and you can be dead as much as, as early as three days later. So yeah. take it seriously. And when you do have those tough times, you know, you've got the Star Trek, you've got the podcast, you've got us, reach out to us. We're here through Twitter or through Discord, uh, if you're a patron, or through the Camp Kettimer page, whatever. We're here for you. We don't 
look at it as like part of a job. We look at it as being part of a family and we're going to do the best we can to help everybody get through this. And there's plenty of distraction in Camp Kenmore, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whew. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, it's we don't we try not to get uber serious on this show unless it's a topic that's uber serious. But I've just seen so much in the last 48 to 72 hours that yeah. I, I couldn't let it pass by without saying anything. So um, if you're out there, you're having a tough time. Just trust us. You are absolutely you're not alone because um, it's affecting us all different ways at various times. So. And just go to Camp Kittimer, pull up photos. There's bound to be pictures of Bill's face there, and then you'll laugh your ass off. So there you go. Case closed. All better. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. You're smiling too. It's your face. <laughs> That's not very funny. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, I got nothing. Are you ready to do this there, Jerk? I am ready. Let's do it. Star Trek Five, baby. All right. Coconut!